Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me. I have with me Ron Murphy. Ron Murphy has been investigating the stuff of nightmares for over 30 years. He has investigated the things that go bump in the night and meticulously researched the historical and psychological context of myths and legends from around the world. Mr. Murphy seeks to uncover the archetypal precedent for the monsters that haunt our collective thoughts. His website is CryptoGuru.net. Ron, thank you for joining me. How are you? Hey, my friend, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Good. Um, let's get into the reason why I wanted you on to talk about strangeness, folklore, legends. When we look at folklore as stories that have been passed down, but there's always a hint of truth to them. What started your interest in the world of cryptids and legends and folklore? Well, I think it was, uh, you know, definitely my mom. She had a great deal of uh, influence on me about how I perceived the world around me. Um, you had talked about, you had interviewed Stan Gordon not very long ago. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, whenever I was a kid, um, now remember, I, I have been following Stan Gordon since I have been in grade school. And I am still doing conferences with him to this very day. And he looks younger than I do. So either he's a vampire or he has experienced some sort <laughs> of uh, residual stuff from these UFOs that he's been investigating. But the guy is still on fire and he's still going. And I owe much to who I am today to Stan Gordon because he's like the grandfather of, uh, of uh, things that go bump in the night here in western Pennsylvania. But whenever I was a kid, he used to appear on KDKA radio a couple times a month. And my mother and I, we would listen to him on the radio. And he would talk about various Bigfoot sightings and UFO sightings around the around where we lived. I grew up in Blairsville. And then uh, we would go investigate these sites where he told us these things were seen. So from a very early age, the idea of the spoken word and, and, and the lore of, uh, of different areas uh, meant a lot to me. And uh, my mother would, would, would take my brother and I out, and we would go looking for these things. Uh, we never found anything, but it was a great way to spend a childhood. You know, this was in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And uh, it really caused me to see the world with a very um, wide-eyed and childlike wonder to it. So that's the way I approach it to this very day. That's pretty amazing. Um, Stan Gordon, he really is a legend around here. He told me about how active Fayette County is. Have you heard about that, how active Fayette County is? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Fayette County is one of these very, very interesting places where, um, now, of course, I write and I lecture on the paranormal. And whenever you look at things like the connection between Bigfoot and UFOs, uh, the Bigfoot extraterrestrial connection, um, without some of the things that happened in Fayette County, it would be very hard to make that connection. Um, Bigfoot in Fayette County has been seen, you know, in and around UFOs. Uh, they've been seen holding glowing orbs at times. Whatever is going on in Fayette County is tending, is making me tend to believe that there is something very different uh, in the Bigfoot legend than just a living, breathing, flesh and blood animal. There's something else going on. There's something, you know, extremely uh, strange going on. And without these instances in um, uh, Fayette County, we wouldn't have this kind of, uh, you know, precedent for these kind of strange things. The other interesting thing about Fayette County is if you would look at the word Fayette around the country, there's Fayettes in almost every state. And whenever you do find this name, almost always there's something very 
strange connected to it, something paranormal, some sort of legend, some sort of folklore tied to the place. And what is so interesting about this is that the word Fayette is uh, French that means little fairy. And fairies throughout history have been these very mischievous little creatures that go about, you know, um, causing havoc for humans. Um, so as part of my research, and I just wrote this in my last book on fairies, um, part of my research suggests that the name Fayette is almost a warning on a map, like here be dragons to kind of stay out. Because every Fayette around the, 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 the country that I've investigated has had something paranormal related to it. That's pretty amazing. And then um, for the people who have had the experiences like seeing dogmen or Bigfoot or ghosts, there's still skeptics that say none of it's real. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I see. I think that's a good point because I've been investigating this stuff for years and years, well, decades and decades, and I am still a skeptic. Um, I have not seen anything unequivocally to suggest that what I have, what we're dealing with here is something um, that is like a dogman or a Bigfoot. I've uh, had a lot of anecdotal things happen to me, but I've never had that, you know, that, you know, creature on the table, pinned down, scientific review of these things. So I'm still very skeptical. If somebody tells me there is a an eight-foot uh, canid uh, creature out there stalking the woods, or there's a Bigfoot creature out there stalking the woods, I need to have some sort of tangible evidence in order to be convinced. Um, but what does lead me to believe there's something out there, and not only my experiences, but whenever I talk to people who have claimed to have these encounters, and I'm talking about these big guys, these big, you know, they look like they belong on a Harley Davidson. They will come up to you and say, you don't believe in this crap, do you? And I said, you know, I keep an open mind. And then they walk away, and a few minutes later they come back, and there's tears in their eyes, and they say, I have a story to tell you. And it affects them. It affects them systemically. Um, it affects them psychologically. It affects them spiritually. It ex uh, affects them um, physically. Something's going on there, my friend. Something is going on there that is taking very sane, lucid people and um, converting them into believers of something that should not be out there. And that is really what keeps me going. Whenever I go to conferences and I talk to these people, and I, and I get down into the research with these people, these are normal people who do not want any kind of fanfare or any kind of media attention. They just had something happen to them that they can't explain, and they're looking for answers, or they're looking to, to you as a way of getting what they've experienced off their chest. Now, what do you think it is? Do you think it's um, interdimensional? Do you think it's them resonating at a higher frequency? Do you think it's higher consciousness? I mean, those are all reasonable uh, reasons for what it could possibly be, I think. Yeah, I agree with you, Robert. I think that we're dealing with something that could be a manifestation of all those different things. Um, whenever I talk about the fairy realm, and that's really where I'm leading, leading my, my, my course of research right now, I'm not talking about the Disney fairy tale, like, you know, Tinkerbell. I'm talking about the idea of this intelligence, this elemental intelligence that's connected to the environment, and they can manifest themselves in different ways, or possibly not even manifest themselves in different ways, but allow you to think that what you're seeing is, is what they are, you know, some sort of projection, which is the reason why people are out in the woods and claiming to see eight-foot-tall creatures but have no pictures of them or have blurry pictures of them. 
I think it has so much to do with vibrations. I think it has so much to do with frequencies. And I think it has a lot to do with things like that we really know within the world of science, like infrasound and even, um, even pheromones and things, you know, things that can alter the way we perceive reality. If these creatures are self-aware, if they are able to insinuate themselves into our thoughts or somehow um, kind of tinker with the way that we're, we're seeing things, well, that's a complete game changer at that point. You know, um, it has been proven that things like infrasound, which we know animals have, wells and cetaceans use this, but also lions and, and alligators and crocodiles and giraffes, they all use infrasound as well, too. It's a way of being territorial, but not confrontational. And we know a lot about infrasound because it has a military component to it. So a lot of uh, militaries around the world are using this as a non-lethal deterrent. Um, but if you think of an animal that lives within the world around us, that wants to keep um, a territory unto itself and keep you out of it, one of the best ways to do that is through infrasound. It can project this over the course of maybe a mile or more, and it can make you believe that there's something out there that really is not out there. Um, one of the aspects of infrasound, and there was an article in, I'm trying to think what it was. It might have been an MSNBC. Um, report and it's probably about four years ago now uh, but they reported that there were um, paranormal like aspects to using infrasound in a military uh, situation that people would think that they hear voices or see things that's very interesting to me if these animals are or these creatures are able to produce these feelings of the paranormal within us if we go into their territory then i think infrasound is really the answer that we're looking for here I really think that's it. So we talk about vibrations, we talk about frequencies, and I use those words as well too. But I think when we get right down to it, something that we can study from a scientific nature, I think we have to look at infrasound. I've never heard of infrasound before. I am really interested in it. And, and but, but also, just thinking about if, if the fact that all these things exist, like dog men and Bigfoot, and Bob, I don't know about goblins, but thunderbirds, and I mean. If they exist in an alternate reality, how weird exactly is this world, and what exactly are we living in? That's right. Well, you, you really have hit the nail on the head there, my friend. Um, first of all, are we what, what we're asked to believe is that in the woods around us, there are creatures like the Dogman and Bigfoot that are apex predators, and somehow they're able to share the same resources not cross paths and are never seen, nor do they leave any evidence behind. That's what we're asked to believe. It seems foolish, but people are still seeing these things. And I'm not talking about just regular run-of-the-mill people. I'm talking about biologists and game commissioners. They all see these things. So what happens if 90% of these people are making it up or misidentifying a creature? Well, that leaves 10% of this in the unknown foul. So something's going on there. So is our reality around us almost like an onion where we can take away one peel and one layer and sometimes we can see through one layer into the next layer? Are we living in this translucent world full of wormholes that takes us to one place and another? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know as I'm investigating the idea of the fairy world again that when we talk about things like the Thunderbird, 
there's a um, there's a, a creature, uh, an elemental uh, fairy, over in um, in Wexford in Ireland that can change itself into a very large bird, very reminiscent of the Thunderbird. Um, there's also accounts of fairies in Yorkshire uh, that turn into giants. Um, we have the idea of the woodwose in England. Um, so if we look at other places around the world, if we look at the European tradition, especially the Western European tradition, we see the idea of fairy making a lot of sense in what we call the Bigfoot UFO dogman phenomenon because these things have precedent and they've been going on there for thousands of years. We just don't like to think in those terms because we don't want to be mocked at and laughed at thinking that there's a fairy out there doing these things. See, when I think of fairy, I've never heard that concept before either. And you're bringing up a lot of good points. When I think of fairy, I think of like Tinkerbell. What am I not catching on to here? You're saying a fairy can be a Bigfoot, a fairy can be a UFO. It could transform into whatever it wants. Uh, in whatever, um, it, it could transform into whatever it wants, but what happens if we do with this, Robert? What happens if we say that it's not transforming into the what it, it's not transforming, but it's allowing us to believe that we're seeing it transform? See, that, that makes a lot of difference at that point. Uh, we're talking about something psychological then. We're talking about yeah. the manipulation of the human mind to see something that's not there, kind of like a sleight of hand. So if you're going into the woods, you already have a preconceived notion of a Bigfoot, and you stumble across something like this, and it is able to manipulate your thought process to think, I am seeing something that's huge and hairy and bipedal before me, then it has done its job. It is able to stay safe, it's able to stay unphotographed, and it's able to stay far away uh, from where you're at, and all it had to do is manipulate a thought in your head. That is it, you know? So that's one of my, my one of my ways of thinking. But if we look at fairy realm throughout history, you know, one of the hallmarks of the fairy world is the idea of abductions. And if you lived 15, you know, 1,500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, or even just a few hundred years ago, and you were walking at home at night, and you saw something blowing out in the field, and, you know, you stepped into it, you would have had a fairy encounter and not an extraterrestrial encounter because that wasn't part of our vernacular at the time. But if, you know, and, and again, I, I've written a book on fairies, which is really one of my latest books out. It was just published last year. And um, I go through the history of, of the fairy and its development in the human psyche. Um, whenever um, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, he wanted his elves to be fairies but the Victorians so destroyed the idea of the fairy, he could not make them fairies, so he had to make them elves. So when we think of Legolas, you know, and the, 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 great, the great characters in the, the Lord of the Rings, you know, think about that. He wanted these characters to be fairies. But uh, again, we can't really use that term anymore because really when we get to the time of the Victorians, they've corrupted it so much that whenever we close our eyes, the immediate concept that comes in is the idea of Tinkerbell or something very benign. Uh, but throughout history, and we're talking about ancient history at this point as well too, um, fairies have been mischievous. Um, they've been um, uh, malevolent. And at their very best, they've been indifferent. But the thing they're and the reason it's called the red cap is that it would wait along the side of a road for a stranger to pass. It would then murder that stranger 
and dip its cap into the finger. So that's why they call it the red cap. But yeah, there's the tell of, you know, of giants that were taking heads of travelers, you know, all these kind of good boogeyman stories about staying on the road at night. But uh, yeah, the idea that the fairy is something small, that is not true. Uh, not only are they shapeshifters, but they can also be, you know, physically in the form of giants as well. Now, does that mean that they could be something like what the um, what, what would be called the jinn? Is, is, is that common? Like, is that similar oh, to the you know what? See, it is, and, and I will have to... Uh, I will have to remark on your intelligence there, Robert. Uh, that is true. So we're going down a different rabbit hole here, but it's going to lead to the same place. Um, in in, in the, um, the, the Middle Eastern tradition, the jinn could be something that could be ghostly. It could be demonic. It could be vampiric. It could be part of the fairy realm. It could be a lot of different things uh, by the way you would perceive it. Um, for instance, if you were a Muslim investigator and you were living over in the Middle East, you probably would not be a ghost hunter. You would be hunting the jinn. They would come across as very uh, much like a poltergeist, uh, the characteristics of those types of things. But they could take so many different forms that we really didn't know what they were taught, what we were dealing with. But the jinn and the fairy are almost inseparable um, in many, many ways. They're all part of the land. They all are an intelligence as part of the nature. Uh, they're very ancient, and their origins are, you know, a mixture of, of, of uh, Judaism, Catholicism, um, uh, you know, Muslim influences all heaped into one because nothing exists in a vacuum. So by the time we talk about fairies, we still have, you know, religion influencing them as well, too. Um, a lot of people think that, you know, fairies are fallen angels, the same way people think that the jinn are fallen angels. And if things move around your house, people have well, – one. I'll give you one um, instance. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, visit a home in England that was reported to be not only ghost haunted, but fairy haunted. And whenever he left the next day, he said the fairies were far worse than the ghosts. So again, you know, only until recently have we started to categorize these things. But if you went back, you know, even a hundred years, you know, fairies could be responsible for um, ghostly hauntings. Uh, the idea of tree knockings was was also a prevalent feature of fairy lore. Um, so all these kind of things that we we cast now into the realm of Bigfoot or UFOs or or ghosts once all belonged to the singular uh, umbrella of the fairy. So you're saying like that like UFO abductions could actually be tricksters like fairies, or do you think they're actually biological well, yeah. entities too? Yeah. I, I think that we're coming into something like that. And, and let me just give you a, a quick, a couple quick um, uh, um, references here. Um, there was a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Reverend Kirk. Uh, he lived in uh, Stirlingshire in, uh, in Scotland, right in the middle of uh, uh, Scotland. I've actually got to uh, investigate this area. Um, and he was a reverend, you know, he was contemporaneous with Shakespeare. Um, and he talked about walking home one night and there was a hill there and the hill had a light emanating from it. Um, he said it looked like a door was open. He went up to it, and he peered inside. And inside, he saw these very 
tall, beautiful, human-like figures, which would sound like the Nordic figures when we talk about UFO abductions now. And then there were these small little kind of gremlin figures, which seems to be very reminiscent of the Greys when we talk about the Greys. Um, but he was transported to what he called the fairy realm. And um, it's believed by many people that he was abducted never to be seen again because he chose that realm over our realm. Um, but the idea of these creatures kind of intruding in on our world and taking us back with them is part of the fairy uh, 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 literature and a part of the UFO literature as well, too. Uh, another counterpoint to, to think about as well is whenever Whitley Strieber wrote his book Communion, he said that whenever he was abducted, it had a very natural feeling to it. He said the UFO, the craft, smelled like fresh dirt and cinnamon. So again, we are hearkening back to a world just outside of ours that we don't know so much about, but it's still oddly familiar as well. And I truly think the world of the fairy fits into this very much. Um, the idea that fairies would come in and take your children and leave a changeling behind is something that was that was part of our belief system. I think there was um, um, there was a lady that was killed in Ireland by her husband. I think her name was Cleary, and this was in the late 1800s. And uh, he killed her saying that she was a changeling, and he was not acquitted. He was found guilty, but he had a very, very minor sentence because the courts believed that there might have been something to his story. So, you know, like I said, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, you could kill your spouse and get off of the idea that, you know, hey, she might have been a changeling. So this, this idea that we live in a very modern world, which we do, it's still being impacted by a lot of these stories and a lot of this folklore and superstition from the past. But is it only legend and folklore and superstition, or is there a truth that underlies all this? And through all my research, I think there is truth under all this. I think it's pretty amazing because you brought up two big points that I've never heard of before, and I'm so interested in hearing. Infrasound, is that how you said it? Infrasound? Yep. And, and uh, infra, fairies. Uh, I-N-F-R-A. Yep. Infrasound and fairies. Yes, sir. And the only other guy that ever brought up fairies, I interviewed uh, a fellow from over in the UK. His name's Pierre Sabac. Have you ever heard of him? I have. Yes, sir. Yeah, he does like the etymology of words and stuff like that. Sure. And he's broken down to where he there's these two different sets of angels, like the cherubim and the seraphim, which are reptilians. But he talks about the jinn too. And he told me he's actually writing a book on fairies right now, too. So there, people are sure. definitely getting into this this realm. They're this this right. idea of fairies. What's, yes. What do you think? Sparked, I, I think what do you think sparked this? Um, well, I, I think there's a few things that sparked. One of the one of the things is that we are viewing the world around us as something that can be you know torn apart and taken from us, uh, especially in the crisis that's going on. You know, we see polar ice caps melting. Uh, we know that we're damaging the world around us. We have pollution, and now we're starting to think about you know, maybe we should try to start saving things around us rather than destroying everything. Um, fairies necessarily need the world around us. They need the nature around us. They need the natural world around us in order to survive. 
and I think that that is one of the reasons why we long for that kind of stories and those kind of beings. It's something that we can't control. It's something that we can't domesticate, and it's right beyond our civilized world. So we, they're out of our control. Um, but this is nothing new. It's not like I'm, I'm pontificating here and saying, oh, you know, this is great. Um, if you would look at the uh, uh, right at the end of the uh, of Victorian period, uh, a lot of artists started to deal, deal with uh, fairy paintings because that was the time of the Industrial Revolution, and they were destroying the world around them, and they really wanted to have that more bucolic type of laid-back way of life, that agricultural way of life, that is pretty soon going to be all but forgotten. And the fairies allow us to believe that there's something beyond us, and they allow us to reminisce about a time that was a lot slower and life was a lot different. Well, I truly believe that there's something out there. I mean, I just don't understand it. It's very weird. Even when you think about something like multiple dimensions, when we think about deja vu, it makes you think there is there are multiple realities. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, the idea of, and, and look, we're not blowing smoke here. This isn't something off of the sci-fi channel. You know, science is starting to talk about multiverses now, that, you know, every decision in our life, whether we make it or we don't make it, has a reality of its own that plays out someplace else. Um, and that's a shocking thing to think about, that there might be multiple versions of us multiple versions of our reality and we talk about deja vu or even like the mandela effect isn't it interesting to think that there is a another reality that sometimes blurs with ours or intersects with ours just long enough for us to be thrown a little bit off kilter you know a little bit off balance i truly think that's what's going on i think that the world around us is so multi-layered and so multifaceted that every now and then something very strange seeps over or we seep over into that world. And that's an interesting thing as well, too, that maybe a lot of the things that we're citing and seeing uh, that we're actually going visiting them instead of them visiting us. Well, you want to hear something really strange, like, Oh, absolutely. I've, sure. I've, I've had dreams before that I've died in this lifetime and I'm actually in this lifetime that like I've had it multiple times and I can't explain that. And the only thing that I that can't explain it is I heard in another podcast, another guy was saying that time really doesn't exist. So that's a possibility that when you die, you could possibly reincarnate maybe into this life again. Like maybe we've lived these lives before. What do you think about that? Oh, no, I, I believe that 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And my daughter, who is, uh, she's not very much into the paranormal but uh, she has no problem believing in past life, life uh, theory simply because of all the uh, deja vu that she has had, you know, in, in this life and the idea of, of, uh, of um, almost a synchronicity in certain things. I think that, well, first of all, we have to uh, uh, say that time is not linear and time really doesn't even exist. That's something that we invented. You know, we invented the years, we invented everything like that based upon our sun. Um, and that's only so we can, you know, basically um, divide the day into work. You know, that's, that's why we do things, unfortunately. But time is all an illusion. Um, I was in a car accident actually on Saturday. Um, I, uh, I hydroplaned the car, 
Um, it rolled three times. I should not be alive. Wait, and, this, uh, just this Saturday? Yeah, just this Saturday. And I, and, and I found myself, I was upside down in the car. I undid the seatbelt and I, you know, I found myself on the roof. I opened up uh, the, uh, the door and I walked out without a scratch on me and nothing, you know, no pain, no bruising, nothing. Um, I should have been dead. You know, the, the fire department that came on the scene said that I should have been dead. Um, and I didn't. So I don't know how to explain that. Um, and, you how know, did it happen? Um, I, you well, I was, oh, no, that's fine. No, I was uh, actually coming back from a book signing and um, I was on a back road in Indiana County and it had just rained and hadn't rained for a while. And um, I was going up the, the uh, road and my car hit a, at a wet spot and all it did was simply fishtail, but it went to the side of the road and instead of there being like a berm at the side of the road, there was actually a hill and my back tire caught and it flipped me three times. Um, I wasn't going at an excessive speed. I was probably only going 45 miles per hour, but um, it was just enough to send my car airborne. And um, yeah, like I said, whenever that happened, um, whenever the car was rolling, I can remember, you know, specifically whenever it was rolling, I, I, my thought was, I can't believe the car is rolling and one's going to stop. But, you know, when we think about time, we think of how it can be compressed and how we view things. Um, I think at that moment, I really understood that, um, you know, life is a gift and our, our, our time here is a gift, but we also might belong to different segments of that time as well too different eras and sometimes we um can you know blend into those places and sometimes we can recall certain things um uh, you know it's kind of like the idea of a soulmate too we go through life looking for that person uh, that was created for us and sometimes we find that person sometimes we don't but the idea that we were all kind of created for a purpose and then we're thrown out into this thing called life and we have to discover what that purpose is. That's very exciting, very romantic, but it's also very daunting as well. But um, that's the reason. That's the way I'm going to start going through life, though. That's what, you know. That's one of my things. I'm going to take my time. I'm going to um, you know really appreciate what's going around me. I don't want to rush anything. I want to you know sit back and smell the roses and everything. And that has a lot to do with what you said about the idea of time. Um, I'm not going to buy into the idea of what people want us to perceive the time is. I think I'm just going to let, let everything kind of unfold. I mean, of course, we still have to work and we still have jobs and everything. That's just a minor inconvenience in this thing that we call life. But at the end of the day, we are the stuff of stars. You know, we are, we are the stuff of this universe. We are infinite. And we have to remember that, and we have to kind of trudge along, but we always have to have that romantic notion that we are meant for more than what we're allowing ourselves to be. And then I was going to say, since we're going down this, I always ask, almost, I ask a lot of my guests, what do you think happens when we, we go pass on? Do you believe there's a realm that we go to that we have a life review and then we reincarnate, or what are your thoughts? Well, um, the first time that I had what would be called a ghostly experience uh, was ever my grandmother died. Um, I remembered I was at the University of Pittsburgh and I was in graduate school at the time. And um, I woke up, it was probably about three o'clock in the morning. Um, and I laid in my bed for a while and I knew that something was wrong. And about a minute later, the phone rang and I knew 
without a doubt that the call was for me and it was my grandmother and my roommate came to the door and I, I knew without even picking up the phone what had happened. And uh, sure enough that she had passed away. We were very, very close. And um, I, uh, you know, it was like one of those things where I knew that a part of me was gone. Um, and then I was uh, laying in my bed probably only about four months later and I remember sitting up because I felt something enter my room. And at the bottom of the bed was my grandmother, and she was standing up. And it was odd because for the last couple decades of her life, she was confined to a wheelchair because as a kid, she had polio. And um, she started to get progressively worse as she got older with all the you know malformations of her limbs and everything. Um, but she was standing at the foot of my bed, and she said to me, she said, you don't have to be afraid of death. It's like opening up a door and going into another room. And then um, she didn't disappear. Uh, she didn't vanish. She just simply wasn't there anymore. I, I, it's hard to describe. It wasn't anything. Um, it wasn't a terrifying thing. And mostly whenever I investigate ghostly um, hauntings, as they call it, there's usually not a form of terror to it. It's something very reassuring for the person, and it still impacts me today, even though it's been, you know, 30 years since this event happened. But uh, I often think about that. Um, to her, uh, death was like opening up a door and going into another room. Um, I, I think that death might be unique to every single person. I, I think that, you know, if, if somebody wants to go to a place they perceive as heaven, I think they go there or I think of somebody is so attached to, you know, this, this, uh, you know, the, the human world, they can come back again as well, or maybe even to, to make up for past deeds or to learn a lesson or what have you. But I, I, I don't think that it's a cookie cutter existence. I think that it's a very unique, I think that it's almost tailor made for each one of us. And I also think it's nothing to fear. Um, this world is beautiful. Um, as hard as it can be, it's a very beautiful place. It teaches us a lot of lessons, but it's only, it's only a world of like riding trading wheels before we get to that place where our physical bodies doesn't provide the limitation, you know, where we can go and we can become one with that universal consciousness. Um, you know, it, it's something that I think is, um, you know, religion is trying to explain it. Uh, New Age folks are trying to explain it. But I don't think it's something that can be explained away. I think that we enter into something, the ultimate love, you know, for what everybody was created to be loved and to love. And I think that we probably don't embrace that until we get to that ultimate form, you know. Uh, and, I, and I truly think that is the case. But, yeah, I deal a lot with ghosts. And I do a lot of hauntings. And um, it comes back again and again and again that the people that have an experience with a ghost usually find it extremely beneficial, and there's nothing terrifying about it at all. It was able to give them closure. Um, so from a psychological point of view, a lot of people think that ghosts and hauntings are this um, self-fulfilling prophecies that they, we see them because we need to see them. It provides us with a psychological uh, element to continue on with our lives. But the people that have witnessed these kind of ghosts and these kind of apparitions, that has nothing to do with it at all. It's nothing to do about us. It's about knowing that uh, that other person is is someplace where we will be able to meet them again.
Yeah, well, Art Bell had a really interesting theory on ghosts. He thought that, you know, if somebody had like a tragic death or, you know, like they were really attached to a loved one, that, that a ghost was someone who was like trapped in this earth. There was like a part of their consciousness that couldn't move on. But it's weird because like in your case, I hear people like that that say that they've seen their relatives and their relatives always say that they're fine. So what do you think the difference is? Do you think there are people that are, or do you think there are ghosts that are kind of trapped here? Or, because I would hate to think that. I, you know what, I hate to think that as well too. I do. But again, let's talk about that for a second. Let's go back to the idea that time doesn't exist. So if time does not exist and somebody finds themselves out of their body, uh, you know, instantaneously, sort of speaking, you know, or if they're young, or if they have committed some sort of sin, or they have not completed something they need to complete, it makes sense to me that, you know, hey, I just kind of um, peeled off one layer, and now I'm in a, uh, in a different realm, you know, a different state of being, but I still have that same focus. Um, I could imagine that if, you know, bring up that car accident, uh, you know, and that sometimes gives me the goosebumps, too, to think, you know, maybe I didn't survive that car accident, and I'm just here right now because I love talking to people like you, and I and I still want to be around my children, and that's the reason why I'm lingering, but I, I don't know. I mean, that's the whole thing is that if I had children and I, and I, and I somehow, my life was ended here, um, I probably would choose to be around them if I could offer them any kind of help or advice. Um, and, you know, if we look at the history of hauntings, uh, oftentimes ghosts do tell people um, about where, you know, money is hidden or give them advice or, or, or help them out of a predicament. Um, I, I, I really think it's, it's the goat comes back to who you are. If you are so attached to somebody and you love them more than life itself, I, I don't see why you would not exchange your eternity for just a few more years on this life, you know, taking care and watching over that person. Yeah. Well, to switch the subject, like I was, I, one of my questions I had for you is every town has their own legends or folklore or murder house, their own history of hauntings. We all see ghosts in these areas of here, mountain men or monsters. Are there any cool stories in North America that stick out to you that you think are true? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Every little town has uh, legends, you know, going back to folklore, that's who we are as human beings. We love to tell stories. Um, and uh, so if you look at the idea of like the, um, the popular um, resurrection Mary, you know, someone that had died, you know, either during her, her uh, wedding or during the prom, and she still wanders the roads on which she was killed. That's the popular thing. And, you know, outside of Chicago, there's places in Maine like that, um, or there's ghosts that appear before a, a bad storms. There's people like there's ghosts like that in Virginia and in the Carolinas, you know, to warn against uh, um, uh, hurricanes and such. But yeah, throughout this entire country, and I don't care where you go, you could go to any state and bring up a legend that's in your area, and they will have some sort of corresponding legend to go with it. It might not be exact, but it's so close that we know that you know this is part of who we are. Um, and then we throw in Native American influences, especially around the Great Lakes, where I've, I've done a lot of research. Uh, there is so much imprint on that land with uh, the Native American oral tradition that, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why these legends kind of carry on, too. Like the Wendigo or the Dogman creature. What is a Wendigo? 
A Wendigo is, um, it's kind of like a spirit, um, a disembodied spirit that will possess the, the body of a human being and turn them into a cannibal. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So um, uh, I, I did a lot of this research up in, um, up in Sault Ste. Marie. Now that's, that's a pretty rugged area right there. Um, I was uh, up there at a casino. There's a casino right there, right across the river from, uh, from uh, uh, Canada. But it's a very isolated area. But the Ojibwa people up there um, have this, this very great oral tradition of the, uh, the Wendigo. And there's even lakes up there called Lake Wendigo where the spirit is supposed to reside in the lake. But, yeah, that goes back to, you know, this goes back to well before the white man came here. And it has to do with the idea of greed and the idea of um, the prohibition against cannibalism. Um, because usually if the uh, Wendigo was ever seen in a human form, they're very gaunt and they're very emaciated. And they look like a walking skeleton at times. Um, and they're so famished that they can keep on eating without ever getting full. Oh, wow. That's yeah. interesting. Um, and then, since have you ever done research? I mean, a lot on my channel, I've interviewed people about the Anunnaki. Have you ever went back and looked at the Sumerian tablets? And Yeah, absolutely. So um, my, my buddy Brian Bowden and I, uh, we have uh, been working a long time on a book that is dealing with uh, early, uh, well, I don't like to always work in absolutes. I don't like to work in black and white because I think everything is a gray area. But we're looking at the possible influence of extraterrestrial visitations on the mound building culture in the eastern United States. Um, and one of the things that we have to look at necessarily is the idea of the Sumerian cylinder scrolls that have on them what has now been called the Anunnaki. Um, you know, we talk about the idea of giants and the Nephilim from the Bible. Well, what's interesting is on these cylinder skills is the, these, these, these beings called the Anunnaki are sometimes three times the size of a normal human being. Now, archaeological research will suggest that one of the reasons for the difference in size is that we could automatically see by the iconography that that person was in a higher standing to the smaller figure. That makes sense, but... What doesn't make sense is somebody that meticulously um, makes um, a lifelike drawing, a lifelike impression, and to throw that little detail off. It doesn't make much sense to me as an art historian to do something like that. I think there's something else more to go on. I think that we're dealing at least with a race that was um, more foreign to the humans in that area than we're letting on whether they were giants or whether they were an advanced civilization, something. There was something going on with these people at that time um, to the point that these, these beings were deified. Um, the locals could not explain them away, so they made them into gods. Um, but if you look at the things uh, that occur in uh, uh, Mesoamerican um, mythology, like Quetzalcoatl and like Kukulkan, you know, these same type of images keep on coming up again and again. Um, these godlike figures descending from the skies, uh, demanding sacrifice, um, um, being diviners, giving culture. This is something that really links cultures from all over the world. And instead of looking at one particular area, I like to connect the dots. And the more you connect the dots, the more it seems like cultures around the world had 
contact with what we call the Anunnaki or, you know, or whatever, the Sumerians, whatever you want to call them. Um, but there was something going on there. It's great to get, it's so, you don't know how great it is to hear you say that because I interviewed Freddie Silva. I'm sure you've probably heard of him. And yep. he thinks the exact same thing. He said from every culture around the world, they have story of this brotherhood, like the Anunnaki, that they were like a brotherhood that spread out throughout, you know, before the flood and helped start civilization. So they weren't just in Samaria. They were in Mesoamerica. They were in, you know, Nordic, everywhere. You know what I mean? That's right. That's right. I, yeah. I mean, I don't know if they were from off planet. And if you read the tablet, I did a lot of research into the Anunnaki. I know a lot about it. And if you read the Atrahasis, where it says Enki and uh, uh, his son, uh, Ningshida, who was supposedly Thoth, too, they genetically modified the first man. I don't, I don't know how much truth there is to that, but I mean, why is it written? You know what I mean? I don't well, think exactly. they can make that up. That's right. No, I agree with you 100%. Um, and also, if you look at the idea of like Enki and things, whenever you look at these, this, these creation mythologies, um, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, you have a lot of these characters, so to speak, that you would call, you know, part of the Anunnaki cosmology um, being personified in these, these creation stories. But what's so interesting in these creation stories is these are the stories that the, the, that the, uh, that the, um, that the Jews pulled upon to create their Old Testament as well. We talk about the flood stories and the flood motifs. That's something right out of Judaism as well, too. So we are all interconnected. Um, and then whenever you look at Native American tells or, you know, Asiatic tells, it's the same exact thing. Not only is it the same exact thing by, by um, word of mouth, <laughs> But if you look at, like, whenever the Anunnaki especially, because I like to look at the idea of portals, and a lot of times you see these, these bearded figures uh, with wings stepping in or out of what looks like a circle, you know, what could be called a portal. If you look at that kind of iconography and that kind of image, whenever that was going on over in the Middle East, the same thing was being etched in rock in North America, in China, in Africa, all around the world. You see these same type of circular motifs appearing again and again and again with something either stepping into it or stepping out of it. And so, I mean, so what are we supposed to say? Humanity had some sort of connection with a culture that was able to kind of um, bring us all together, even if it only lasted for a brief period of time. But I think it's undeniable to suggest that we did not have one common culture at one time that kind of fragmented off. And the same thing with the idea of a common language. I'm a, I'm a, a big proponent of the idea that one time we spoke a common language as well, which is the reason why when we talk about things like the collective unconscious, that kind of comes into play too, because we all had, we're all hardwired for this kind of universal language as well too. But hey, look, these are all stories that could make up for, you know, two or three other shows. It's a yeah. shame that uh, that we got onto it so late because it's a very interesting thing. Well, what do you think about this idea? I mean, this is just something that I always thought up on top of my head. What do you think the idea that different extraterrestrial races could have spawned different human races here? That's why we have the difference in skin color and, and, stuff, and stuff like that. 
You know, yeah, it's very, very possible. Um, one of the things that I like to look at, though, um, instead of looking at, like, extraterrestrial races, I always like to look first and foremost at what we can accomplish as human beings. And I'm thinking that sometimes when we talk about extraterrestrial races, we are talking about um, advanced civilizations that may no longer be here or were some sort of interdimensional. I don't think we really have to look off Earth for a lot of these kind of things because as human beings, I think that we're very intelligent creatures. I think we're able to accomplish a lot. But again, when we talk about the idea that there might have been some sort of um, interference with our DNA, um, although I'm, I'm skeptical of that, um, I'm not completely um, denying it either. We know that our DNA is not pristine. You know, it has been blended with things like Denisovans, and it's been blended with things like Neanderthal DNA. And now there's another strange DNA that has come out that has not been recognizable. So we don't know. I mean, maybe we are have some sort of DNA from the stars as well. You know, maybe we are, you know, from off planets. It's hard to say. Um, but I, I keep an open mind about everything. But I, I will tell you this. Um, emphatically, that, you know, when we look at each other, we look at everybody, we are all more interconnected than we are, than we think that we let on to be, you know, we all are part of that, you know, that, that, that human chain of being. And not only are we more interconnected, our um, um, upbringing and our um, evolution is much more advanced and much more miraculous, we tend to believe as well. Yeah, and real, I don't want to take up too much longer of your time, but the last, one of the last questions I have is you brought up portals. What do you think could have happened to the portals? Or do you think portals and Stargate still exist? Oh, I do. I do think they still exist. Um, whenever you look at ley lines, especially in England, um, we talk about um, points on the earth that have this energy. And we talk about like Stonehenge and, you know, Avebury. But we also should point out that along these, these, these sacred lines, these sacred sites, um, there's also um, evidence of pagan temples. And on top of that temple, a Christian site was built as well, too. So we know that there are power sources in the grid, you know, in this power grid. Um, what's very, very interesting is the more I got involved in this, is I found out that, you know, it's quite possible the government does know that some of these things exist as well, too. Uh, there were a few Native American Indian sites that seemed to represent a, some sort of power grid by the kind of uh, um, artwork they left behind. But oddly enough, those places have been flooded under, which is kind of strange to think that maybe there are these power grids that people know about, but in order to eliminate them, they simply flood them over. <clears throat> but yeah, if you look at China, and if you look at Africa, uh, we see these same rock carvings again and again, these kind of swirls, the kind of thing you see on Newgrange in Ireland. And it's leading me to believe that the ancients were very connected with the earth around them. They knew that it had the capability of, of having, you know, under certain conditions, um, uh, uh, some sort of power that can open up doorways, a key to open up another realm, if you will. And that's why places like Avebury and Stonehenge were created to somehow um, memorialize the fact that these things did exist. But they were never like around people. They were always out in the liminal zones, always out in the areas beyond the human realm. And that's something to consider as well, too. It's never, they're never easy to find. They're out in the, the remote locations where, where things that go bump in the night well you know they're not around yeah. us yeah <laughs> so 
So where do you think these portals might have led to? Off-world, obviously? Um, well, um, what, what happens if we talk about this? What happens if we talk about um, another dimension within our world? You know, that's, a, that's another scary thing. Um, that we talk about opening up a portal, and it simply takes us to another layer in that onion. You know, that we just go down farther down the rabbit hole to a different area. There might be portals right now that leads to a world that coexists with our world that we just simply don't see it, you know. Um, and that's where things like the Bigfoot reside or things like the fairy reside or Dogman resides. And every now and then, if everything is just right and there's some sort of activity within the earth or within the, within the atmosphere and there's enough energy that's permitted that this is the key to open up a doorway even momentarily to allow these things in or out. Yeah, well, this has been amazing, and I think one thing we could probably agree on is that we're um, we're definitely um, as a as a and all the alternative media is coming together, and we're really starting to put together ideas about where we've been in the past, and and I think that leads us towards a better future. That's a great way of putting it. Absolutely, I think you know I have great faith in humanity. I, I still I still do. Um, I think that's a perfect, if we can kind of recall and remember and take pride in what we were able to do in the past, nothing can stop us. You know, things like the Corona is something easy compared to what we were able to do on the banks of the Nile 5,000 years ago. You know, we got to get it together. We got to work together as a human race and we got to think about the future rather than the past or the present. And that's the only way that we're going to be going on. But my friend, I do have faith in who we are. Yeah. Well, this has been one of my best podcasts. I, I really, I'm really going to thank you. Like I, this has been honestly, like I had a, um, a set set of questions to ask you that just kind of went out the, out the window. I, 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 we just, the conversation just flowed really well. well thank well, you. So we were together for an hour. It flew by. It seemed like a few minutes. Um, I, I say that what we do is I say we get together in the near future and maybe even have this in person. So it's just like you and I sitting around chatting for a while. I would love to be able to do something like that with you, Robert. Yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. And if you want to tell everybody where to find you and how to in your books before we go. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, if you want to are interested in my books, you can go to uh, – Amazon, that's kind of the catch-all for everything. And Ronald L. Murphy Jr., and I've written about 20 books on the subject. Um, and then, or you could uh, find me on social media, Ronald L. Murphy Jr. on Facebook. You can like me there. Um, and yeah, just get in touch with me. Uh, oh, I will also give you my email as well, too. I'm inside the Goblin Universe at gmail.com. Uh, you can uh, send me a line there if you want a book or what have you. I would gladly talk to anybody. Looking forward to it. Now, at the end of the day, my friend, we're all, um, we all ask questions because we're looking for answers. And the more people I talk to, it's always the better for me. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you again for doing this and have a good night.